You are listening to the Techie Leadership Show with Bogdan and Andrei. Hello and welcome to the Techie Leadership Show. Today with me I have Gurbir Perhar. He is a machine learning professional with over 10 years of experience from Toronto, Canada. He has a PhD from the University of Toronto in computational ecology and has experience in academia, government, startups and enterprise. He is currently working as a senior director of data intelligence, overseeing data science, business intelligence, and advanced analytics at Compass Digital Labs, the tech wing of a $22 billion parent company, means Compass Group. So hi, Gurbir, and welcome to the show. Hi, Andre. Thanks so much for having me. It is my pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to find out about your stories and how they apply, and especially... Uh, I like to say, like, it doesn't get more techy than being in data science. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is definitely a lot of tech involved, yes. And Gurbir, do you want to add anything else about yourself? Uh, I, I, think, I think that bio covered it. A lot more will likely come out uh, in the questions and the discussion. So let's just do it that way. Awesome. So I'm going to let you pick. Do you want to start with the success story or the failure story? Uh, let's start with the success story. Awesome. Starting with, on a positive tone. Let's do so, it. So, Gurbir, what is the biggest leadership success story you witnessed personally? So, it, it's, not, it's not a story uh, or it's not a single story. It's really more of a philosophy and more of just gathered learnings from experience. Interesting. Um, and that is uh, being a perennial outsider if that makes any sense, or always bringing an outsider's perspective to any given situation. Um, So I can speak to this from my own experience going through academia, getting into industry, and I can also speak to it from a a leadership point of view and how I really uh, riff on on bringing in outsiders to make sure we're really hitting the mark with what we're trying to do. Um, So going all the way back to the beginning, when I when I started grad school, um, I was very much an outsider. Um, my undergrad was in physical sciences, so lots of physics, lots of math. And all of a sudden, I was doing a, I was in a PhD program for uh, ecology and evolutionary biology, yes. uh, which is a big Indeed. stretch, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so, so all of a sudden, I went from studying uh, astrophysics to aquatic bodies of water. And it, this makes no sense. Why would someone do this? How could someone do this? Yeah, um, and, and, and the way it happened was I was looking for a recommendation letter um, in order to get into a grad program after my third year of undergrad. Um, so I found a relatively young professor uh, who was looking for folks who could do both um, programming and had calculus understanding. And coming from a physics program, yes. you're speaking to the right person. Um, so he, he was he was setting up a lab where he was going to do a lot of ecological engineering, a lot of mathematical modeling. Um, and I went in there with zero expectations. I didn't expect to be paid. I didn't expect to have a job. didn't expect anything. Just wanted to get that reference letter. Um, one thing led to another. Five years later, I had a PhD out of that lab. Uh-huh. But, but again, being that outsider, uh, it, it taught me so much. Number one, most importantly, you have to work twice as hard as non-outsiders to fit in. 
So, yes. so you always have to be doing your homework. And in order for you to be doing your homework, many times you don't have the underlying principles or foundations to quote unquote wing it. So preparation is key. But then uh, from a math point of view, from a methodological point of view, there were so many learnings and lessons and experiences that I took from the physics world and brought over to ecology. Um, and we were able to do a lot of basic fundamental uh, science through mathematical modeling. And, and that was, oh. it, it was, it was so weird, Andre. Like it, I thought, I thought it was going to be a detriment being an outsider, but it actually ended up being sort of like a superpower where it's like, you have this context and yes. you have this ability to bring in uh, non traditional styles of thinking and and the solutions you come up with are hopefully robust as a result um so it it, it continues because after my phd uh, i i did a postdoc for a couple of years because at that time i thought i was going to be uh i was going to be a lifelong academic but then oh. i eventually i eventually had a side project that event that got me recognition and got me into industry and that industry was the online world of sports gambling, about as far as you can get from, from <laughs> yes, an undergrad in physics, biology. a PhD in <laughs> biology or yes. ecology, to now machine learning algorithms for the NBA and European football and breaking news. Um, but again, uh, I was very much an outsider. I was the, they made an exception to hire me. They had a rule that anyone they hired for this department had to have a PhD in computer science. Uh, my PhD was very much not in computer science, yes. um, but but I was able to demonstrate, uh, again, many examples of outside-the-box thinking that they gave me a shot. And it was a very, very fun job. Um, but uh, when I aspired to to a more leadership role, um, I had to look elsewhere because the, the ceiling was very well-defined at that job. And that's what that's how I ended up at my current company. And this, this ethos, this style of uh, outsider thinking as a, as a superpower continued when I took on a leadership role because, as, as you well know, um, data science didn't really exist 10 years ago, 15 years ago yes. when, when we were in school. So none of us went to school for quote-unquote data science. So you have to hire technical people who, who can function in one way or another on a data science team. So this means some people will have PhDs, some people won't. Some people will have a math background, some people have a stats background. Some people will have a computer science background, others will have uh, something completely different. It could be a lab background, clinical background. We have one aeronautical engineer on the team who's now uh, doing very well as a data scientist as well. And, and again, the same thing, going all the way back to when I first left physics to get into ecology, the same thing applies here, where if we're trying to tackle one problem and we bring in three or four different team members with very different backgrounds and experiences, they're going to come up with three very different solutions. And at the end of the day, we can have a selection process, but having that variety ensures that we're never tunnel visioning ourselves. Yes. Um, which is which is a very uh, long-winded way of saying I love being an outsider. <laughs> <laughs> No, and it's it's actually I I looked a little at innovation, and the 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 crazy thing and the astonishing thing is, leaps of innovation in most domains happens when a person with deep knowledge from another domain, some way through a coincidence he felt, 
in, in this other domain. And his insights and he takes knowledge, his deep knowledge from that domain and applies it in, uh, to problems, hard problems that smart people are trying to solve in their domain and they could not figure it out. And this outsider comes basically and brings innovation and new tools, new ways of reasoning. And it, it grows the, that domain to the next level. And you are absolutely right. It's hard to be the outsider because people that are in the domain, they cannot accept that somebody that just got to it is, has, can have deeper thoughts and breakthrough ideas that they've been struggling for years and or even decades to, <laughs> to come up with. So yeah. I, I mean, I, like, I, I think the future of research in general, it's already happening where it's multidisciplinary. Um, every branch of science is now basically melding into other branches. And, and 50 to 100 years ago, mathematics was creeping into science and it was very hard to distinguish the two at times. So, so your point about having someone with very deep knowledge and inserting them into uh, a non-traditional context it, it speaks volumes like it, it's it's absolutely uh if done the right way can bear a lot of fruit can yield a lot of fruit exactly. but but sometimes it's just you don't even need to embed a subject matter expert you just need to put in someone who will be the quote-unquote agitator to make sure the yes. group doesn't have group think or tunnel vision um so one just very quick tangent story um, when I was doing my postdoc, I attended this project management workshop. So project management for academics, which sounds very interesting because <laughs> at that point, sounds we, it sounds extremely boring because <laughs> at that point we had all finished our PhDs. And if you finish a PhD, that means you somewhat know how to manage your yes. own project. Um, but, uh, the, the premise was that after we got all our modules and lessons and learnings done our culminating project it was only a three-day workshop our culminating project was to come up with a very grandiose project make believe we don't have to follow anything through but we had to plan everything through so the group that i was paired up with it was myself uh, a, a fellow with a, a phd in I, I believe mechanical engineering another one in computer science and there was someone else who was actually very close to what uh, degree i held so very technical people uh, on, the, on the math and engineering side. And the idea that we came up with was we want to create and flip the world's largest pancake. Um, so so, so we, we came up with these like grandiose plans and schemes. I can't even remember at this point. It, it was going to be like two or 300 meters in diameter. And, and right away, our brains went to, okay, materials engineering. The batter consistency has to be right. Um, the pan has to have equal heating. Yes. We're going to need a crane to actually flip it. There's going to need to be a safety radius, all these things. Um, and when we presented to the group, uh, the moderator just had this smile on her face. And we thought we were doing really well because it's like, oh, yeah, we thought everything <laughs> through. Everything is going to be amazing. And she only had one question and the smirk never left her face. She's like, okay, when are you going to do this? And we said, obviously it's going to be a warm month sometime in the summer. And she said, okay, yes. uh, the morning of your preparation, the thunderstorm rolls over. Now what? And we were like, oh my God, we never thought of anything like that. We were so focused on the technicalities <laughs> that we didn't even provision for weather or circumstances or context or anything. Yes. So, so 
so what I, what I take away from that is anytime I'm putting together a project or the team brings something to me, in the back of my mind, I always have this pancake principle in my mind where it's like, okay, what are we missing? <laughs> what are we not thinking about? Who can we bring in to help us focus on what we haven't thought about yet? Yeah, and, and it's important to bring in, like, I, I like how you pointed out, agitators to break you out of your tunnel vision. And it's funny because I have a friend, he is a software developer here in my town, and he switches jobs so often. Like, he stays like six months, a year, a year and a little. And asking, like, why don't you stay longer for, for, with the companies that you select? So, like, because I like to be, it's described like this. I like to be like the person that comes to a company and shakes it up and agitates it and takes it to the next level. And then I move on and I go to the next company. That's what I enjoy to do. And he took his role really serious and he would pitch himself while he was job hopping to the next company. Mm -hmm. He would pitch himself as that role. So you bring me on. I'm not going to stay that long with you. So but I'm going to provide breakthroughs for you and insight. And he actually, he came back that he was hired uh, several times to the same company. So again, so he would move around. Right, right. And, 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 and this person, was he an individual contributor or more of a management leadership type role? So he started as an individual contributor and then he moved really fast up in management and he... He's really well known around the city and he loves helping people and helping them grow in their teams, but he doesn't stay long in roles just because of this, because he truly believes that he is there to bring innovation. And once it's done, he moves over. He moves over. For example, for one company, he started a, a whole R&D department and built it. And, and now it's like the largest R&D department in, uh, in my city or that any companies I know has. <laughs> so see, see it's, it's really interesting because your example highlights that you don't have to come from a different academic discipline or a different part of whatever expertise domain yes. uh, to be an outsider, to be an agitator. Sometimes it can just be uh, different contexts for different companies. If you've been in one company, one group for too long, sometimes you need to bring in that external force to help you realize uh, what you're doing might not be optimal, even though the person you're bringing in has a very similar background to the rest of the team. It's just experiential context in this case. Exactly. And he was offered, like, he could have stayed and be the director of R&D at that company. I said, no. And now he would have, like, over 100 people working for him. So it, it grew and grew, and it's, like, really successful, the, the, the projects they do there. But he said, no, I'm moving on and doing other stuff and bringing innovation. That, that's what he likes. And it's important to also think about if you like this kind of lifestyle and job style, do it, go for it and be upfront about it. Tell people like, look, I'm not going to retire from your company, but I am going to help you take it to the next level. And when that happens, I'm going to move on and find other places to, to do the same thing. Right, right. Well, uh, let me tell you, it's very comforting knowing that I'm not crazy for thriving in this type of environment. <laughs> Lots of successful <laughs> people have come things. before us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Gurbir, um, now I'm really curious, what is the biggest leadership failure you had the unfortunate experience of witnessing? Yeah, I'm a huge proponent, uh, like many guests have mentioned in the past, of uh, thriving on failures, learning from failures. So there's yes. a there's a very deep bucket that I can draw from, right? Um, but, but 
but again, I, I want to talk just, just, uh, I've got some examples, but we won't go too deep into them. But, but really the, the holistic theme here is lack of empathy. So, so you may have seen uh, a Venn diagram of what makes an effective data scientist. One circle is math and stats. Another one is computer science knowledge. And the third one is domain expertise. Now, even though we've got a very uh, diverse group uh, in one form or another, we all went to school like on, on our teams for either math and stats or computer science or something that combines both of them. Domain expertise and domain knowledge is going to be very different uh, company to company, department to department, even project yes. to project. Um, and the, the downfall of a data scientist is when you mix up your opportunities. Uh, and by that, I mean, is your tech solving your stakeholders problem or are you simply creating new ones for them? Yes. Um, right. Like if and you miss the mark, yes. sorry, go ahead. Unfortunately, it often happens that you create new problems for, for the end users. Right. Right. And, and uh, it's, it can be very, uh, it can be very frustrating because what's commonsensical to the creator of the tech is anything but to the end user or the stakeholder. And when that mismatch happens, uh, nothing good can really come of it unless there's this iterative process, iterative workflow where we can take our learnings, take it back to the lab, come back with something better that addresses all the needs. But, but on the data science side, uh, over the years, we've found that uh, the absolute worst thing a data scientist can hear when we put forth what we think is very impressive, very innovative, a big breakthrough in terms of modeling insights, whatever the case is, um, if the stakeholder just says, okay, that's neat. Anyway, I don't know how to use this. Let me go back to my day job now, right? Oh, so anytime, yeah. anytime someone says so neat, it's, it's, it's so demoralizing. So, yes, it is. So, I mean, when, when we try to provide solutions without fully understanding the domain space or the limitations <clears throat> or the basal drivers and, and motivations of our end user or stakeholder, um, really nothing good can come of it because you're, you're investing so many cycles, so many sprints into arguably very useful tech. But if that proverbial final mile misses the mark, it doesn't matter how amazing your process was, how amazing your workflows were. It's not driving value. It's not impacting the bottom line. You're not using your tech to make the stakeholder look good. Therefore, you don't look good. And we've got some examples of this. Um, okay. So, so when, when, uh, when I first started uh, the data intelligence group at Compass Digital, one of the first things that we delved into was recommender systems, recommendation engines. And we were like kids walking around with hammers and we were just looking for nails. The, the hammer was a recommendation system and we were going to use recommender systems for absolutely everything. We thought we were going to revolutionize the, the industry, turn it on its side, start printing money and be the, the data like gurus. So we, we tried this in a retail context and in an operational context. And in both times, um, limited understanding of the domain 
caused us to fall flat on our face. We had, we did all of our responsible requirements, gatherings and whatnot. We even brought on a business analyst, a project manager to make sure we were not missing the context, but it still failed. So, so in the, in the retail setting, um, the task was because Compass Group, our parent company, they're in the food and hospitality space. They're one, they're the largest uh, contract food service provider in the world. Um, the idea was how can we move more product? How can we move more branded items, be it uh, Coke or Pepsi or whatever else, um, using data? Can we can we use uh, data to really pinpoint where there are opportunities, where there are gaps, and then provide uh, inventory Inside. there to sell through? So we again having gathered all the the requirements understanding the workflows and how a unit manager would order pepsi or coke or water or sandwich meats or whatever the case is we came up with a recommender system to look up uh or really hone in on opportunities and gaps and what it came back with was it's we had an opportunity to basically print infinite money because the opportunity was so big so that should have been the first warning sign that okay (laughs) It is very unlikely that these math and computer nerds are going to revolutionize the business in their first attempt, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea, the idea here was that we should be pushing as much Pepsi product in the greater Atlanta area as possible. So okay. for those listeners not familiar, uh, in the United States, Coca-Cola is headquartered in Atlanta. And what what the algorithm was too stupid to know because we neglected to tell it was that a lot of contracts in the greater Atlanta area are stipulated to use Coke only products. So the algorithm honed in on this and it ignored all the other legitimate opportunities because this was the biggest one on the, the table. Yes. But it was BS. It was nothing. And, and it's yeah. because it's because, uh, um, contract stipulations and legalities were not part of the training set. They were not features in the model, Um, but it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, when you're presenting something, uh, it misses the mark, it misses the mark. Or you're presenting something that's not feasible, it it doesn't matter how much work you put into it, it, it's almost wasted work. Um, Another example of this, uh, a much quicker example was uh, on the operational side when it comes to where do we push cans versus bottles. Um, of, of soda, of soft drinks. Yes. Um, and there was, again, the, the machine learning algo focused on this one opportunity where we were selling cans. And it said, oh my God, if you switch cans to bottles, this is the delta. This is the margin that you're going to, uh, that you can expect. And almost all of it falls straight to the bottom line. So it's a very good project yeah. for in terms of optics, operations, limitations, whatever. It's, it's green all across the board. Again, what we didn't realize was that the site that we were doing this at, um, the, the, the consumers are not allowed to bring beverages onto the factory floor. And they oh. only have 15, 15 to 30 minutes for their lunch and coffee breaks. So that's enough time to drink a 355 milliliter can of Coke yes. or Pepsi or whatever else the case is, but not enough time to drink maybe a 700 milliliter bottle of fluid. So even though from a financial and mathematical point of view, this recommendation makes sense from a humanistic and operational point of view, because we lack that empathy, it made no sense. Right. So, (laughs) so, so lacking that contextual awareness, 
um, and 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 having all the details, it it can be very very dangerous. Um, and and we've learned that over the years. Um, and that is not to say that everything we put out there now is an immediate home run, grand slam, slam dunk, whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, we're we're constantly trying to get better about not missing the mark by fully understanding and empathizing what the what the existing opportunity or problem is, so that we can solutionize it uh, without these massive gaps in understanding. Yes, <clears throat> and it's so important to have domain expertise, and and it's not just in machine learning or AI, in anything. Because in anything related like to tech and building systems. And I was, I remember this, um, I was at a meetup and the question appeared like, how do we become better programmers? And there were like really good programmers at that meetup. And I, and I told them, look, I, I can tell you how you're going to, you can become like a great programmer, but you're not going to like it. I said like, what is it? And I said, don't study just programming. Go, if you're building software for marketing, read some marketing books, mm -hmm. try to do run some marketing campaigns yourself. Um, whatever you're doing, if you're doing business software, read about business, how it runs, what it needs, uh, get a job, like stop being a software developer or go get a part-time job and go there and see exactly how, what it happens and get that domain knowledge and then come back to software development. And then you're going to be a rock star because you will know firsthand you have firsthand experience on what is required in that domain and it, it takes it, it's not something pleasant you know nobody wants after you do so many years of computer science if you if you went to computer science or so spent so many years mastering your your tech stack and working with it going back and doing something that's not related it's not appealing <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. hard but from my own experience, I saw uh, as a computer, because I, I was like as a hobby business and uh, my family has been in business since the 90s. It, it came to me like easier to relate like with the requirements of especially B2B software or uh, even to end consumers because I, I had some hobbies online, some websites and uh, sold some products and everything. So it was more relatable to me and, and had more insight when discussing features and everything because I knew what would me, had made me like really angry with the developers of a software. Uh, and um, I could have prevented that and created different workflows and tried to make it as easy as possible. And it's important. It's, it's, it's not something that most people will do because it takes a lot of effort, but it will take you like to the next level as a developer and even going on in management because you're going to have deeper conversations with the teams actually implementing and actually driving them on, okay, get more domain knowledge, let's find out, study. Uh, don't have tunnel visions. I, I like like this. Don't have tunnel visions just about the tech. You mm -hmm. have to broaden more and more. And and I like I like that point because what it boils down to is communication. And in order yes. to effectively communicate, you you have to meet in the middle, or at least try to meet in the middle. So to your earlier point, you're a rock star software developer, but if you are building a marketing solution, familiarize yourself with some marketing 
thoughts or or frameworks or or methodologies, whatever the case is, so that when you are asking questions, when you're gathering requirements, when you're trying to fully empathize with what the end user's needs are, um, you're starting from a stronger place. Um, one thing that we learned, again, the hard way was, uh, and I love learning things the hard way because you never make that mistake twice, <laughs> hopefully. Um, <laughs> That's the idea. That is the idea, yeah. Um, is that uh, from in, in data science, you're never, I shouldn't say never, I don't like speaking in absolutes, but it's very rare that you're going to go into a boardroom um, speaking to a CEO or a president or even a vice president, who, whatever the case is, you're not going to go into a meeting with a super senior seasoned business leader and wax philosophical about how amazing your model is. You're not going to get into the mathematics. You're not going to get into the, yes. the, the features and, and you're not, you're really not going to have to explain why your solution is the best solution. You were hired to come up with the best solution. So when you're talking, when you're communicating the potential upward to the business side, you have to make sure you've translated your tech talk into English and even in English, simplified English that gets to the bottom line quick because you've got, you've got anywhere from 30 to 90 seconds to capture their attention, capture their imagination. And if you, if you manage to catch it, then you can talk a little bit more. But the only way to catch that information is to skip over the technicals altogether and go straight to the bottom line. How is my solution going to help your current opportunity or your current problem? Yeah. And get some of that business lingo going for you and read some business books because if you're in tech, you work for a company and you, and probably your higher ups, they're all coming from business or they have a business background or they spend a lot of time discussing business because they want to grow the company. And the only way to actually going back to communication, as you said, is it's easier for you to learn their, their lingo than for them to learn your lingo. And frankly, most of, most of them don't have the appetite or the desire to learn tech lingo that much. Even if we love it a lot, uh, well, most businessmen don't want to learn it. Yeah, so yeah. You have to speak their language. Absolutely. With your background, you were in academia, um, and then you moved in uh, doing computer science for, I, I like like betting hey. and <laughs> winning, and now working at the Compass Group. What would be your leadership philosophy? Yeah, so my leadership philosophy really is a continuation of my personal philosophy as a lifelong academic, um, as a human, as a person, as whatever you want to call it. Um, and there's there's two main pillars for me. Number one is always be learning. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of being able to learn something, however small, from everyone every situation, every interaction, be it yes. good or bad. You can learn just as much from a bad role model as you can from a good one. Um, yes. it, it, obviously, in the case of a bad role model, or not role model, but bad example, <laughs> you don't want to emulate that. You want to be the complete opposite. Whereas if you're gravitating towards a positive example, you want to take the best parts of their being, personality, workflow, mindset, and try to emulate those parts. Um, and 
I was fortunate to grow up with parents who were very encouraging and very much involved in, in my life and my sister's life as we were growing up. And I still remember when I was eight years old, we would always sit around the dinner table and have conversations. Yes. And my dad, every once in a while, he's my mentor, my coach, my best friend to this day. Um, but uh, he, he would he would sometimes have one-on-one conversations with myself and then with my sister and tell us his approach. He would never say, this is how I want you to live your life. He would just say, this is how I go about my day. And he was very much a tech person as well. Um, and his entire philosophy was when my head hits the pillow tonight, I do a mental inventory to make sure that I'm now better in at least one dimension than I was when I woke up. Not every single day you're going to have an epiphany. Not every single day are you going to pick up a brand new skill that you didn't have before. Maybe it's context. Maybe it's experience. Maybe you learned something about someone you didn't know before, but either way you're progressing every single day. Um, And as we all want to impress our parents, I very much took on that mindset and philosophy of my own. And I live, I live it to this, to this day. Um, So am I better now than when I woke up this morning? Um, And the second, the second Uh, pillar of my philosophy is lead by example. You should never have to scream for attention and and tell people to follow you in line, Um, especially as a leader. That is really the difference between being a leader and a manager in my mind. Um, A manager, you're giving out tasks, you're keeping on top of things. A leader, you are inspiring. You're inspiring your people to be better, to go faster, to go harder, and to really outperform themselves. They're not competing against anyone except themselves. And you can get that out of them. Um, and in my experience, the best way to do that is leading by example. So growing up, I was a huge uh, hockey fan. Um, and my two favorite players, ironically, they both wore number 19 for different teams. Uh, one was the captain of the Detroit Red Wings, Steve Eiserman. One was captain of the Colorado Avalanche, uh, Joe Sackick. And these guys were never number one in the league, but they were always in the top 10, top 20. Um, and when you would watch the games on TV, they would never be screaming or yelling at their teammates. They would never be talking. They were quiet. They were stoic, heads down, focusing on the work, leading by example. And the amount of respect that they commanded was insane. No one had anything, or sorry, everyone had only positive things to say about them. And when I was watching that growing up, 10, 11 years old, it really resonated that, okay, you know what? One day I want to be like that. I want people to respect me without me having to command it. Um, oh, yes. So, so again, as a kid, you still want that respect. So it's just still a very immature thought. <laughs> but but when, when I was given the opportunity to take a crack at leadership, it, it was a very conscious decision that if you hold yourself accountable, and you work honestly, and, and, and you put in hard work and effort, um, chances are the more junior people on your team, everyone on your team is going to follow suit. Um, and it's, it's worked out well. And, and I, I still do that to this day. And that's like the one epiphany that you have to have about leadership is you have to go first. And you're actually in a race of one. You're always in a race with yourself, you know, working on improving yourself, having introspection and showing people like, like you said, like by example, I, I'm doing this. And so it's not, you don't have double standards. I want you to do this stuff, but I'm not doing it because I'm the boss here. That's like a recipe for failure, instant failure. 
that's that's a that's a recipe for mutiny. I mean, yeah, because exactly. because mutiny. because I mean, in the tech world, things go sideways all the time. Maybe there's a deployment that didn't go well. Maybe there's a crisis. Maybe your data uh, database has crashed. Something always happens. Um, and if you, as the boss, have rolled up your sleeves and you're doing very different work, but even in a support role, if you're there with your team um, as they're trying to patch things up that is so much more uh, effective than saying, okay, guys, fix this. I'm going home. It's five o'clock. I got to go home. Yes. No, 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 no. That's not an effective leader in my mind. There's different ways of being effective leaders, of course. But if you're leading by example, uh, you're part of the team and, and you got you to gotta be there for them. Yes, you have to be there for them and protect them. You're going to take all the flag from upstairs. And yep. Ideally, they will never know about it. Right. And they they will realize like it's really quiet, like only good news trickles down from upstairs, none of the bad. So that's when you know you have like a good leader working <laughs> working with you. Well, I've I've actually from my peers, I've gotten some flack for this next statement, which is building on your point, which is uh, anytime there's bad news, um, anytime someone needs to be held accountable, it's me. Uh, anytime there's good news, it's not me. I need to get out of the way and make sure the individual contributors or the managers yes. or whoever's working on something gets the praise, gets the pat on the back. Um, not everyone agrees with that. But again, that's just part of part of the philosophy that I've been using thus far. And is it working great? It's working fantastic. The team team culture, which we'll get to uh, in one of your future questions, I believe. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it is so important because, because actions like that, contexts like that, they breed trust. And if you can trust yes. each other, if you can rely on each other, everything else is just details. We'll get it done regardless. And uh, for aspiring leaders, what would be your top three leadership tips? Yeah, so number one, and, and this is going to be a constant theme throughout uh, these discussions we've already had, um, is manage your relationships. So when you're first put into a leadership position, um, you have to manage in three different dimensions or three different directions rather up sideways down. So when you're managing up yes. or I'm talking about your boss who you report into, they are yes. your biggest stakeholder, regardless of who your project stakeholders are, you have to make them look good. Yeah. Um, when it comes to managing yeah. sideways, uh, I'm talking about your peers and your peers uh, who are managing other departments, other divisions, other whatever, they are your support system. Um, very few successful departments got there on their own. That's my belief. You have to collaborate I mean, with the other departments, yes. 100%. Um, and then down, managing down, these are the people that work for you. But I got that backwards because you work for them. So yes, you have to exactly. be their coach, their mentor, their support system, their confidant, whatever is required. Um, because again, you, you, you mentioned it earlier, it's a, it's a race of your team against your team. So any individual contributor on your team, their sole job is to try to be better than they were when they first got the job yes. or better than they were last quarter. And you have to help them to do it. 100%. So, so call this leftover aspirations from when I wanted to be a professor or when I wanted to go into academia. I love the mentorship and coaching angle of taking someone who has a little bit of potential but is not fully realized yet and helping them be the best they can be. And then from there, there's no stopping them. Uh, I must say, you sound like an amazing boss. If I was in Toronto, I would have signed up. 
I'm coming to work for you. Oh, I'm humbled. Thank you. <laughs> oh, for real. Everybody that wants to experience like a good boss and he's from Toronto, he should come and work, uh, apply for a position. And if he's lucky enough to get on your team, it's going to be, he's got like a, a really good leadership experience. Fantastic. Um, so that was, that was tip number one, manager relationships. Yeah. Super important. Tip number two, again, we've talked about this already, but it's work on your culture, work on your team's culture. Um, there's that old quote, I might mangle it here, but I think Drucker said culture eats strategy for breakfast. So culture is more important than strategy. But in reality, you can't, my opinion is that you cannot have effective strategy without culture. Um, And, and this building of team culture really comes into the spotlight when you're working on your hiring practices. So as a new leader, you may be taking over an existing team but eventually you're going to have to make hiring decisions. And when it comes to hiring practices, this is something I learned, which we call the beer test from my PhD advisor. Um, and, and that is that, let's say you have two candidates. So Andre, you're hiring for this position. You have candidate A who is a bona fide rock star, a subject matter expert, probably top one or top half of 1% in the world in what they do, but they're insufferable. Their attitude is horrible. Oh my God. Option B uh, is someone who's yeah, maybe top 15, top 20%, but they have a great attitude, great personality, very easy to talk to, and a very hungry approach. They always want to learn. They will always want to improve. 10 times out of 10, I'm going to choose candidate B, even though on paper, oh, they look, yeah, even though on paper, they look weaker than candidate A, there is so much more potential there. And, and the beer test that uh, my advisor taught me was, or shared with me he didn't teach me um was that uh would you want to go out for a beer after work with this person and that can extend like into the tech world i mean we go for plenty of pub nights after a long day's worth of work but i know the pub you know the pub nights but i mean (laughs) uh again going back to that hypothetical of when stuff goes sideways who do you want there in the trenches with you when it's 2 a.m and something has gone wrong and we can't figure it out do you want the genius who you can't even talk to without offending? Or do you want someone who is very, very easy to get along with? That is not at all to say that all geniuses are insufferable or geniuses can't have open personalities. But in this very narrow example, I'll always go for candidate B. Yeah, but that's how you build true culture. And because company culture and let's say like team culture, because there's also a team ethos uh, playing in anything. You, you you want to be like a true team. It's like, uh, I like to say it's like a family extension. So it's actually, you want to go to events with that those people and you want to share life experiences with them. It's not just work for Christ's sake. If it's, it's eight hours a day and if it's just dry work, it's it's not, it's not. It's, you're, you're wasting your life right, <laughs> if you right. don't work in such a team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. It really depends on the type of team work ethic culture that you're striving to build. Sometimes, sometimes you need those hired guns who, who are just your nine to fivers. They come in, they do a job, they leave. Um, but for, for the longer tenured people on the team, uh, you want that glue, you want that cohesiveness that holds them yes. together. Um, and, and tip number three? Tip number three is strive not to be the smartest person in the room. 
if you're the smartest oh. person in the room too often, you're in the wrong room. Find another room. <laughs> yes. And and this is obviously not, this is a metaphorical room. This is not, I'm not, I'm not saying walk into the CEO's office and plant yourself there. Although if, if that opportunity arises, use it, pick their brain, do it, do it yes. talk to them, learn from them. But as you're climbing the ladder as a leader, it's bound to happen that you're always, you're always going to have this mindset that I'm the alpha in this room. But it's not true. Going back to one of my previous points where it's like, you can always learn something from anyone or everyone. So again, when it comes to hiring, hire people who are better than you, at least along one dimension. There is not going to be, or yes. it's going to be very rare that you'll be able to hire a junior person who can do everything that you do better than you can do. But I guarantee, Andre, that you can hire a junior person who is better than you in at least one of the top five or top 10 things oh, that yeah. you do. Yeah. And as a leader, you need to be secure enough in your abilities to do that because it's for the betterment of the team. It's for the betterment of your practice. It's for the betterment of the company. Um, and there's that old adage that A's hire A's and B's hire C's, uh, B. right? So, so <laughs> yes. hire the best you can and you want to hire people who are better than, better than you. Yeah. And going back like to number one and also culture, like building relationships. I, I like your mindset that it's not just building relationships with your team, you're building relationship cross departmental with all the other leaders and maybe even people in their teams and also with the higher ups because you, you that's your role. And if you do this, you're truly a leader and you're going to get recognized and you're going to get more responsibility, more you're going to progress in your career. It's not just about maximizing the opportunity and the effectiveness of your team. It's also about maximizing the opportunity effectiveness of your team when working inside the company with other with other teams and also with the business goals there. So it's something to keep in mind. It's not don't be focused going back to tunnel vision. Don't have tunnel vision like I'm going to have the best team ever, but it doesn't work correctly doesn't fit inside the company at all because you build yeah. something different. hundred <laughs> percent spot on. Yeah. And since we talked like a lot about improving yourself and learning more, what is the book that has the most profound impact on you? So I'm an avid reader. So I'm going to cheat here because it's not just one book. Again, I'm going to talk okay. about uh, like a, a style or series of books. Um, I love cool. books that describe journeys of companies or projects. Um, so think of them as sort of biographies, but for companies. I also love biographies of people, uh, like the the Elon Musk biography by Ashley Vance was great. Satya Nadella's autobiography uh, as the yes. CEO of Microsoft, amazing read. But books that describe journeys of companies or projects offer so much in terms of lessons, takeaways, uh, and inspirations of how you can take those lessons uh, from journeys of companies or people yes. and apply them to your day-to-day -day life. So some standout examples, uh, Hackers by Stephen Levy, fantastic read, starting all the way in I think the 50s, all the way up to like the 2000s, an anthology of uh, a bunch of outside thinkers doing amazing yes. things with technology. Um, almost anything by Michael Lewis. I, I love Flash Boys, The Big Short, Moneyball, of course. Uh, and then another fun one is Masters of Doom. It, it, it shows how John Carmack and John Romero uh, made the original video game Doom. And again, yeah. it's, it's a nice blend of pop culture 
I mean, Doom was a pop phenomenon, yeah, I but also it when I was young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but also the turmoil that went into creating it, and how they had very, very different philosophies. One John was very much about the tech. One John was very much about the spotlight, and it just shows how they captured lightning in a bottle in a jar, but eventually uh, they started deviating. And as a leader, yeah. as a strategist, what can you take away from that to either do more of what they did? really well or minimize what they didn't do too well yeah and one recommendation i would have uh, and this is something i try to keep in mind when reading like autobiographies or journeys is always take put a little salt on it take it with a grain of salt because winners uh, in life they sometimes they rewrite their history a little to make it sound more uh, more appealing or <laughs> they don't give like all the all the truth behind all they don't reveal the whole curtain it's a little selective about it and it, that's the prerogative of winning <laughs> it it can very much be a victory lap you're 100 percent spot yes. on yeah yeah uh oh so such amazing insight if people want to find out more about you where should they go so i would i would just uh, tell the listeners to look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm actually advising a number of early stage startups when it comes to putting together their data strategy. Um, so I'm very easy to find there. Start up a conversation. Let's, let's talk. Um, but even more importantly, I love having discussions on LinkedIn with people who are looking to break into the field. Um, so awesome. this, this could be people who are looking to get into data science straight out of school. It could be people transitioning out of computer science or development type jobs into data science. It could be engineers looking to get into computer science, really anything. Um, and, and again, my philosophy here is that I didn't get to where I am today without picking the brains of people who are several years ahead of me. So the least I can do is turn around and provide the same for the next generation. Um, and, and the best part is that this type of networking costs absolutely nothing, but offers so much yes. in terms of upside with, with the networking effect and whatnot, right? So, so yes. long, long answer short, LinkedIn. <laughs> and I'm going to put a link on the show notes towards uh, your LinkedIn profile. And I highly recommend people to reach out, connect with you, send Gurbir a message before. Don't be one of those people that just <laughs> click on connect. And pick his brain because he has a wonderful brain and he has a lot of insight, especially if you want to do something with uh, machine learning and data, reach out to Gurbir. Well, thank you so much, Gurbir, for being on the show. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you. The, the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much again for having me. This was fun. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Cheers. That was today's episode. Tune in daily. Rate, like, subscribe and share please. Oh, you can find further info and materials in the show notes on techyleadership.com, including links to the guest book recommendations.